A special thanks goes out to the folks at Spotify for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, we find out what life was like for Tina and Ike. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And we are back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the number one spoken word podcast here in America. And that is, of course, Tom Read Your Story. I'm Tom Zania. I'm a voice actor, a stage actor. Uh, what else? All kinds of stuff. <laughs> now I'm a podcaster. And I'm very happy that you joined me today. Um, America and the world is... Remembering Tina Turner, uh, a fantastic, uncomplicated rock and roll performer. Someone who I had the good fortune to actually not meet formally, but to say hello to. Uh, I worked in 82 at a dinner theater in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we were doing South Pacific, and and uh, whenever we had a night off, which I believe was Monday, uh, they would bring in celebrity acts, and Tina was, of course, one of them. And here's the deal. I lived on the first floor backstage. There was a hallway off the stage left wing, with uh, a makeup and dressing room. And then as you got to the end of the hall, that was my living quarters. There was a room there that I had to myself. That was my private living quarters. And so the green room was only two doors away. And whenever we brought in, whenever, excuse me, they meaning the dinner theater, brought in celebrity acts, I had access to that green room. That green room was yeah, pretty comfortable. It had a big console TV in it. And, of course, a kitchen and some comfortable couches. And uh, I was able to, you know, be near these folks that came in to do a show at the Beef and Board Dinner Theater. And uh, I got to say hello to Tina and her dancers. She only brought two. It was a very, uh, Tina was playing smaller venues back at that time. Um, I think she had some debts to pay off. And 
she brought in her only two dancers, a somewhat small band. But I'm telling you, once that show began, she blew the roof off the place. It was fantastic. One of the probably the greatest rock show I've ever seen. Uh, They actually borrowed two of the fake palm trees from our set for uh, South Pacific. And uh, I don't know, it was a great show. And uh, I was sitting in there in the green room. I think it was at intermission. And um, we, whoever was in that room was watching Johnny Carson on TV as he was interviewing uh, Cher. Cher was dressed all in black, kind of a flowing black outfit. And Tina walked in. Tina Turner walks into the green room, takes one look at the TV and says, she looked like fucking Dracula. (laughs) And obviously generating a few laughs in the room. And, uh, (laughs) That that's one of those little memories that I'll always, you know, will always be somewhere in the back of my mind. Uh, Tina Turner, uh, a gifted performer and uncomplicated. I don't know. I don't think she played guitar or wrote songs as far as I know. Now, if I'm wrong, feel free to tell me. Um but she was all about her performing and she was great. She was one of a kind. Uh, She did a lot of duets with Mick Jagger who were both the same type of person uh, physically. Um, They were all over the stage, which is great. And uh, I, I really have to suspect that a lot of I don't want to say, I guess I could say it. Gen Xers or millennials don't really know the hell that she went through in her marriage to Ike Turner. And what I want to do is play this article that I recorded from the Washington Post. From the Washington Post, how Tina Turner escaped Ike Turner's abuse and reclaimed her name by Jillian Brockell. Night was falling on July 1st, 1976, and Tina Turner was supposed to be on stage, launching another cross-country tour. Instead, she was hiding among trash cans in an alley behind a hotel. She knew people would be looking for her soon, if they weren't already. So after a few minutes, she sprung from her hiding place and ran down the alley. I wound up on a freeway, Turner who died Wednesday at age 83, remembered later. And I ran across that and into this Ramada Inn. She was wearing a white Yves Saint Laurent suit, but it was spattered with dried blood. One of her eyes was swollen shut, and she had intentionally left her trademark wig behind. She asked to speak to a manager and, as she recalled later, told him, I'm Tina Turner. I've had a fight with my husband, as you can see. Will you give me a room? I can't pay you right now, but I promise that I will. This moment, when she would finally escape her abusive husband, the musician and bandleader Ike Turner, who had built an act around her and, in his mind, had made her a star, 
had been building for years. But such was the control that Ike had over her life, that there was almost nothing she could do to prepare. When the moment finally came, she had 36 cents and a mobile credit card in her pocket. When Tina met Ike in 1957, she was still Anna Mae Bullock, a 16-year-old country girl from Nutbush, Tennessee, who had been in the big city of St. Louis for a few months. Ike, then in his mid-twenties, was a polished band leader whose star was rising. She impressed him enough with her unique singing voice that he added her to his band as Little Anne. There was no romance between them those first few years. He was like a brother, she said in her 1986 memoir, I, Tina. She thought he was ugly and marveled at the way women flocked around him. She began a relationship with the band's saxophonist and soon became pregnant, giving birth to her first son in 1958, a few months after she graduated from high school. Ike recognized the band around her and, in 1960, renamed them the Ike and Tina Turner Review. They had begun a romance by then and had a son together that same year, but they weren't legally married, as the band name implied, until a quickie Tijuana wedding in 1962. I knew that I didn't want to marry him, didn't want to be part of his life, didn't want to be another of the 500 women he had around him by then, she wrote later. But I was, well, I was scared, and by now, this was my life. Where else could I go? For a decade, Tina's life was a blur of fame, performance, abuse, and drug use, all revolving around Ike. On stage, she was energetic, strong, sexy, and earthy. Her low voice commanded attention. Off stage, she was an exhausted mom of four boys. Ike had brought two sons from a previous relationship, struggling to control her husband's boss's rages and trying to meet his demands. He broke her jaw and her ribs, choked her and sexually assaulted her. Trapped and hopeless, in 1968, she tried to take her own life with an overdose of Valium. Her stomach was pumped at a nearby hospital, and Ike had her back on stage while she was still vomiting, she wrote. Years later, Ike would deny the extent of the abuse, telling a biographer, Sure, I slapped Tina. We had fights, and there had been times when I punched her without thinking. But I never beat her. In 1972, a few things happened that started Tina on a pathway out. She talked back to him for the first time, she wrote. By then, she was raising the kids, writing the songs, paying the bills. She also found Buddhism and began chanting a mantra regularly. The more she chanted, the more she noticed her life getting easier, things working out better. She was offered an acting role in the rock musical Tommy and filmed a TV special with Anne Margaret. Being on set gave her time away from Ike and glimpses of her capabilities as a performer without him. Finally, on July 1, 1976, she saw her chance. On a flight to Dallas to begin their next tour, the two began to fight. In a car, on the way to their Hilton hotel, he began slapping her. And, she remembered later, she hit him back, kicked, cursed. I knew I was gone, she wrote. At the hotel, Tina massaged Ike's back until he fell asleep. 
The band and crew were still hauling in their luggage and equipment, leaving a brief window when she wouldn't be observed. She grabbed a small bag of toiletries and ran down the hall, out the door and into the alley with the trash cans. At the Ramada Inn, the manager put Tina up in their best suite without charging her, put a guard at the door, and brought her soup and crackers, because her face was too beaten up to eat solid food, while she tried to figure out whom to call. She couldn't go to her mother or her sister, who both lived in houses Ike owned. If she used the credit card, he would be able to find out where she was. She called Ike's lawyer, Nate Tabor, who she had sensed was sympathetic to her situation, and he secretly got her back to Los Angeles the next day. She stayed at Tabor's house, until Ike found out and threatened his family, she wrote. From there, she contacted a friend she knew through her Buddhist practice, ending up at the woman's sister's house up in the mountains. For two months, she hid, moved around, cleaned her friend's houses, and chanted for hours a day. Tina's sons and stepsons were in their late teens by then, but not all of them were out of the house. And to keep herself away from Ike, they couldn't know where she was either. She eventually reunited with them, but the months of her disappearance had a lasting impact, she wrote. Her relationships with her sons would never be close again, and from some of them she became estranged. Another problem arose. As she freed herself from an abusive relationship, the planned review tour failed, and the promoters and advertisers wanted her to pay up. She began booking appearances on game shows such as Hollywood Squares, anything that would generate cash flow. Ike wasn't giving an inch in divorce proceedings, and because he had copyrighted her name, he wanted to take that too. Eventually, she decided, against her lawyer's advice, to let him have just about everything, the house, the cars, the recording studio, in exchange for her professional name, Tina Turner. The divorce was finalized in 1978. Tina had no money, no band, and no record label. She couldn't have known it would be six years before she would release the album Private Dancer, the biggest hit of her career. The Grammys, the Kennedy Center Honors, the induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist, all that lay in the future. But she had already proved to herself that Ike hadn't made her a star. And whatever lay ahead, they would be her best days. Tina Turner, ladies and gentlemen. And that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Read Your Story. Portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today because we are always looking for new ones. Thanks, Spotify, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Let's close today's show with one of Tina's great songs. And I know um, most of you have been hearing Proud Mary <laughs> on social media uh, over and over. So I'm going to play something else. Not that I don't like Proud Mary. Proud Mary is wonderful. But this is a song that I think you probably will remember uh, if you're a Tina fan. And that is River Deep, Mountain High. I'm Tom Zania for Tom Read Your Story. Thanks for coming. See you next time. When I was
This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.